One of the things I love most about this time of year um, is the process of association. And it's actually one of the things I like about rhythm and liturgy as a whole, is that as we do something over and over again, we begin to associate it with certain things, and, and, uh, and it kind of reminds us when we come back around to it of times we've experienced before, um, which is why as much as some of us like to pretend like we hate Christmas music, and as, as bad as the music really is, and as, uh, as, as much as we've heard it over and over and over again, more than we've heard Call Me Maybe or even Baby Shark, um, we, we, uh, when we hear it, it still brings up an association of times past, of festive Christmases in the past. And as much as we try to pretend like we hate it, we feel better when we hear it. It makes us feel Christmassy. And so it's the power of association. It makes us feel happy. Our body gets kind of flooded with that joy that we felt in the past. And this is a powerful reality, and it's one of the reasons why no matter how much we fight, there are certain things that make us feel good. When we pull into our hometown that we grew up in, we get that sense of home, and it's, it's the power of association. And this can't backfire. Some things get associated that we don't want to get associated. Association is out of our control. Some people have trouble with the holidays because there's negative things that get associated to it, and every time it comes back around, they kind of feel that association. Well, the reason I bring this up this week is because we're in Advent um, at week two, which is Peace Week. And if you weren't here last week, I kind of explained what Advent was. A lot of us grew up celebrating Christmas, but not so much Advent. And so we talked last week, Advent is this ancient kind of contemplative uh, process that the church created during this season when we were naturally kind of focused on this time when Jesus broke into history and, uh, and kind of changed the, the human narrative by breaking in. So they kind of created the season while we were focusing on this point in the past where Jesus broke into history, we would also kind of dwell on, on the, the reality, the hope, like we talked about last week, that, that he's going to do it again, that he's going to break in again. And so Advent becomes a season of looking both backward at something that happened and forward at something that's going to happen, but also kind of spending the month contemplating and meditating on the reality that he still does that. He breaks into our lives. He, he kind of uh, advents or appears. The word advent just means appearing. He appears in our life when we need him. And so this becomes kind of a contemplative journey for about a month that we, we focus on the areas where we need Jesus to show up. We just need him to appear again. And we do it while looking back at the time when he's done it before. And that gives us that hope because we know he's done it before. We know that, he, that he'll do it again. So what, what advent becomes is this, this, each week we kind of have a theme that we meditate on for that week. And last week was hope. We talked about um, the hope of being able to see uh, a future that God has created, that he's made us for, and, and see it so clearly that we actually start to walk in that. We titled this series Shine because that's what we're supposed to do with these meditations, not just sit and, you know, stare at our belly button and think about them. We actually hone in on them so tightly that we actually start to go out and walk them and, and live a life of hope. Well, this week I had an unfortunate kind of association as I was contemplating peace and meditating on peace. And I didn't want to take our sermon there this week, but uh, we have to do it. Because I grew up, you know, not hearing a lot about peace. As I was thinking about it, like, what's, what's my history of peace? What do I know about peace? What's peace always meant to me? And I kept going to this, sh- this closed door. And I, and I would think on it, and just association would bring me back to this closed door. And I, I never could, uh, till later in the week, figure out what this meant and where this came from. And why do I think of a closed door 
when I think of peace. And finally, it came to me Friday as I'm thinking on peace that the earliest recollection I have of peace, the, the point in my life where peace first entered my life, was standing at a bathroom door and listening to my mom go, Christopher, can I please go to the bathroom in peace? And so, so peace to me is, I grew up thinking this is clearly something that happens in the bathroom. I was too young to know what peace was, but obviously peace is something you do in the bathroom because that's what my mom always begged for. But this morning's passage is a kind of famous, amazing picture of peace. And so maybe just let your mind free associate wherever it takes you as we read about peace. This is from Isaiah. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot, yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance or make decisions based on hearsay. He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his words, and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. In that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together, and the leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion, and the little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear, and the cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. And the baby will play safely near the hole of the cobra. Yes, the little child will put his hand in the nest of the deadly snakes without harm. Nobody will hurt or destroy in my holy mountain. For as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with the people who know the Lord. And that day their heir to David's throne, the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him and the land where he lives will be a glorious place. This is a pretty famous passage that we read a lot uh, during Advent, and it's inspired, inspired centuries of artists and thinkers concerning what peace might look like. And the lectionary assigned us this passage this week. I told you last week during Advent and Lent, we, we like to read the lectionary passages and study those. And so the passages we get each week are kind of assigned to me, and I just uh, study them and meditate on them. But Let's first start by recognizing that this is a messianic prophecy, which means it's a prophecy in the Old Testament that's talking about this coming Messiah that the Jews looked forward to forever. And, And really, Advent is a time when we kind of tap into that ancient Jewish practice of waiting. The Jews spent forever waiting for the Messiah to the point that during certain rituals, they would open a door like so expectant that the Messiah would return that that they have these practices that would help them in, in waiting for this coming Messiah. And during Advent, we kind of tap into that. It's a season of waiting when we're waiting for Jesus to appear into our story. But we learned this summer as we studied some of David's Psalms that David had this interaction with this prophet named Nathan who came and, and told him that he was going to have an eternal heir, that David was going to have um, an heir that, that uh, reigned forever. And this kind of started to shape David's thinking and And some of his art, some of the songs that David wrote, um, he wrote kind of imagining this future heir, who this, what this future heir might be. And David, I think at the beginning, thought it would be Solomon. He thought it would be his immediate heir, and he he talked like it might be at times. But it became pretty obvious pretty quick that Solomon wasn't going to fulfill all of these uh, prophecies that, that David saw for his future heir. So David figured out pretty quickly that Solomon probably wouldn't, fulfill all of this, 
So when we get to the New, to the New Testament, especially Matthew and Luke, where they open up with these big, long genealogies that are super boring to read, it's really important because that, there's no way Jesus could fulfill what the Old Testament considers to be messianic if he doesn't come from David. Verses like this where it's like, from this shoot of David. So this is a very, very important piece of messianic literature is that the Messiah come from David. And so it's pretty obvious, especially if you read further into Isaiah. Isaiah paints such a clear picture, such an amazingly clear picture of who this Messiah is going to be. It's hard to imagine anybody in history who could fulfill that other than Jesus. And so just according to the majority of the New Testament, this is talking about Jesus. There's, there's almost nobody else it could be talking about. Um, in Isaiah's writing. And so Isaiah tells us some stuff about Jesus, some stuff to look for. He says, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, fear of the Lord. And this is where prophecy gets a little bit tricky, because although there's some things that fit Jesus so clearly, so perfectly, there is some stuff that it's hard to place. For instance, the next part. In that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat, and the calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion, and the little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow, and the baby will play safely near the cobra. Yes, the little child will put his hand in a nest of deadly snakes without harm. So although this, uh, this is kind of what makes writings like Isaiah complex, because although nobody in history fits Isaiah's writings as well as Jesus, last time I watched National Geographic, this was not the world we live in. Um, this was not, in fact, not only do babies not play with cobras, but neither do wives. Um, a couple weeks ago, actually maybe a couple months ago, uh, Esther was bringing groceries in and out of the house, and she had uh, come in and out several times. And then she makes another trip out, comes back in in this six-foot black rat snake had crawled up our door and coiled itself around our doorknob and she had reached for it. So she had actually reached for the snake. And that's when she lets out like an absolute like Halloween horror movie scream at the top of her lungs. Nothing happens. So she inhales and does it again, like throat straining, absolute scream at the top of her voice. Nothing happens. So after about the fourth one of those, I come busting out, chest out, you know, speaking in an Australian accent like the crocodile hunter, like, and, uh, and wrangle the snake off the, if you know anything about rat snakes, they're really docile, and so no danger at all. So I wrangle the snake off the door, you know, and take it out and release it in the woods, and, and all my, you know, I come up waiting for my wife, dude, you're my hero, and all she gets, all I get is, it took me four screams to get you to come save me. <laughs> But we do not live in this world where people can just reach out and play with snakes harmlessly. Except, judging the arrival of Messiah on verses like this, an affection for snakes, ignores the poetry in the passage. Um, this is one of the many passages of Scripture where we can, if we go with a literal translation, we can struggle. And so what I hope to do without getting kind of bogged down in stylistic stuff, I love this, the stylistic studies of Jewish poetry sometimes, if you want to nerd out with me, I'd love to have that talk, but we won't do it this morning. But I do want to kind of look at some of the comparisons the prophet is making in, the, in this uh, talk. A wolf and a lamb, a leopard and a baby goat, and so on and so forth. And one thing I can see without really much thought is that Isaiah is pitting natural-born enemies against each other. 
and saying there'll be a day when these natural-born enemies will no longer be enemies. He draws a distinction between two creatures which we would not imagine ever being together. And here's why poetry is so powerful. By using this kind of hyperbole, Isaiah is able to uh, expand our imagination to other natural-born enemies beyond this. So if a wolf and a lamb can lie down together, why not a Republican and a Democrat? Even more by using poetic language, he makes this passage timeless because he totally could have come out. There will come a day when the Messiah will come and Israelite and Canaanite will sit down together at a meal. But that would have been locked in a set time. By using poetic language, by using simile and metaphor, he can say, there'll come a day when a Roman and a Lombard will sit down together, when a, when a Catholic and a Protestant, when a Federalist and an Anti-Federalist sit down together, when a Chiefs fan eats with a Raiders fan. Come on, that was supposed, that's, a, that's worth a chuckle. When a vampire and a werewolf I was going to say Team Edward, Team Jacob. Would anybody have gotten that? Anybody? I got, I, got, I got three in the back. Yeah, and they were all girls. I don't know what that says about me. <laughs> the point is Isaiah describes an environment where natural-born enemies find peace, which sounds absurd, of course, and it sounds no less absurd when Jesus comes along and he says, you've heard the loss that says love your neighbor, hate your enemies, but I say... Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. This week in youth, uh, we had a mix-up of arrangements, so we, we sat down and let the kids ask questions, their deepest, hardest theological questions. And it took them a while to think up one, and one of them says, you know how the Bible says love your enemy? How do you do that? And I was like, that is a fantastic question. Tell me when you find the answer. But... Last week, we opened our series by looking at hope and the way that we can stand in the world and hope so clearly that we actually start to walk in that world that we see by hope. We shine real hope to the world. Well, peace is no different. Peace that Isaiah describes, this description, is what Jesus wants to create. He wants us to create this environment of peace. And so let's look at how Jesus does it. It says that, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. The first thing we notice about Jesus is, is his access to the spirit. If we look at the way the wording here is, it's, it's not that Jesus has, you know, wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge. It says he has the spirit that gives him access to that. And this is super encouraging because we have access to that same spirit. The Bible says that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us. I don't have to be smart. I don't have to have wisdom and understanding and counsel and might. I have access to the spirit that, that has those things. This is an encouragement to us, but it's more than that. Because it says he will delight in obeying the, the Lord. And this is huge. Have you ever noticed when we, when we talk about sin, it, it oftentimes has this, uh, this kind of under writing motivation of seeing just how much we can get away with before, you know, most of us want to know, can I do this? Can I do that? Can I? This, is a, this is different, though, because they're saying that Jesus will actually enjoy walking in, in the law of the Lord. He'll actually delight in obeying God. Not like, how much do I have to do to make you happy? 
but actually delight in doing it. It's also like this, this kind of talks against our under, like the way we use hell. Have you ever noticed that we, we almost use hell to like beat people into salvation, which if you think about it is one of the most selfish motivations on the planet. Like, okay, tell me what I have to do so that I don't burn. Like you don't even have to like Jesus and have that motivation. You don't even have to care about Jesus and just like, I just don't want to burn. So what did you tell me what I got to do? Which really isn't delighting in the law of the Lord. Like I have no desire to get somebody to join the team because they're, they're, they don't like heat, you know, like I want somebody to love Jesus. And, and so we want to, to inspire people to delight in, in the law of the Lord. Second thing that Jesus does is he will not judge by appearance nor make decisions by hearsay, which means that Jesus obviously didn't live in a world with CNN and Fox or Facebook and Twitter because we live in a world where appearance is reality. You don't have to be right. You just have to say it first and on the air, right? We have two major news networks that say exactly the opposite of each other every single day, and they both say they're telling the news and that the other guy's lying. That's the definition of hearsay. Like, that's what it means. But Jesus won't buy into that. Isaiah said the Messiah who brings peace won't listen to hearsay. He won't trust just appearances. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about some of the political parties that were around in, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and kind of their political alignments and how both sides were asking Jesus these baited questions, trying to get him to declare a team, like trying to get him to say, you know, if, they could be theological questions like, hey, what do you say the, the resurrection is going to be like? Because once you answer, then we'll know which team you're on, right? Then we'll know who gets to claim you and all of, you know, this following you have. So, or news-based questions like, hey, this woman was caught in adultery. How do you respond? What do you want to do with this story? And Jesus never would pick a team. He never would say, no, 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 that's not how I work. The last thing that Jesus does that's different, he says, I'll give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. I think this is really key, especially in balance to delighting in the law of the Lord, because we sometimes have such a tendency to dwell on personal sin, to dwell on do you, don't you, like the do's and don'ts, the list, right? And so we can just look at our own personal sins and decide, am I in or am I out? Am I good or am I bad? He says the Messiah is going to come and he's going to look beyond that. He's going to look at the systemic stuff, how we tie into to, to the sins that maybe I'm not committing but I'm a part of. And is, are there exploited people? Are there hurting people? Are there poor people that I can help, that I have a responsibility to help? I did a study years ago that totally ruined my life on T-shirts. And 80, I think 83, 87, I can't remember. There was somewhere in the 80% of American T-shirts are made by people living basically in slave conditions somewhere else in the world. If you go to most, you know, retailers in America and just grab a T-shirt, you're investing in a system that is enslaving human beings somewhere else. And so now I walk around with my list of do's and don'ts knowing that I can't really afford to buy all American-made stuff. And number two, it's time-consuming to go find thrift stores to buy all my T-shirts at. You know, so yeah, every once in a while I got to go buy a t-shirt that oh, I know is hurting somebody somewhere. And that's the kind of thing, like, it says when Jesus comes, he's going to be 
thinking about the things that exploit the poor, the things that hurt people elsewhere, not just the personal sin. Yes, I delight in walking in the law of the Lord, but and not I. I sometimes hate it. Jesus delights in walking in the law of the Lord, but he also looks beyond that to giving justice to the poor, to bringing fair decisions to the exploited. So I think this is key. So this is Isaiah's pictures of the one who brings peace. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. He'll enjoy obeying God and not be led around by the nose by every news outlet. He fights systemic injustice. What I love about this passage in Isaiah is that the prophet includes the impact of that kind of life. It goes like this. The earth will shake by the force of his words. One breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. Again, don't miss the poetic language here because if we can read this literal, um, it can start to sound kind of weird, you know, that Jesus is going to come on like a slaughter fest, you know, to destroy people. What it really looks like is into history comes this carpenter, this humble carpenter, who shows up in this backwater colony of the Roman Empire, you know, the hub where everything was happening was up in Rome, and, and Israel at this time is way down south in this podunk nowhere, you know, and in the podunk part of that podunk nowhere in Galilee, which if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we showed the picture, you know, down south, you've got Jerusalem in the main part of Israel. Then you've got Samaria. And then clear up north, you've got Galilee. Like it's, it's the Wellsville of, of, uh, of Israel. And in this nowhere comes this humble carpenter who won't join a political party. He continues to tell his followers to take care of the poor. He just goes around doing good for people. He does absolutely nothing you're supposed to do if you want to be a world changer, if you want to have a real impact. And yet, in doing that, in, in delighting in the law of the Lord, in refusing to be led by hearsay, in caring about the exploited and the poor, he literally shakes the earth with his presence. The course of history is completely altered. I doubt that Isaiah had any idea at that point, what this might look like. They did prophesy that the, the peaceful, subversive behavior would actually be more powerful than armies and empires and wars. That Jesus would show up acting like this and somehow the earth would shake with the force of those words. And I, I think we have the power to do that. I think sometimes we feel like if we don't gain power, if we don't get our guy elected, or if we don't, you know, really show a huge force that we're powerless. And I just don't believe that's true. I think sometimes hope and peace, powerful, joy is powerful. You get a group of people, the, the early church was tiny. They were nobodies. They had no celebrity, no money, no political clout. They were nobodies, a small group of nobodies. Within a few hundred years, they were the biggest force in the Roman Empire, the biggest force on the planet. And then as soon as, of course, as soon as they got power, things started to get ugly. They started to be like, the cross and power don't go together. They just don't go together. I don't know how many of you like European history, but Rome expanded all the way into England. 
and then the Lombards attacked Rome, and they had to withdraw. And the only thing they left behind was a handful of missionaries. They brought all their soldiers and all their force back, and those missionaries were abused. The, the Saxons and the Celts and the Druids were all still there, and that little group of Christian missionaries left there is the minority, and they were terribly mistreated. Within a hundred years, the island is Christian. Because this is what's powerful. Not might and war and size, but you take this small group of people who have hope, who believe in peace and joy and love, can shake the earth. How do we respond to this? The title of this series is Shine, because that's our response. We shine peace. We go shine peace. And the best part of this passage in Isaiah is the fact that it's not only prophecy about the Messiah, but it's also our marching orders. As followers of Jesus, we're supposed to shine. The same spirit that rested on Christ rests on us. We can delight in obeying the law of God. We can refuse to be shaped by hearsay. We can defend the poor. And when we do, peace becomes a weapon that we can use to defeat evil. In our world, we so easily get caught up in hate that it can, it can be easy to feel like there's no other option but to combat the darkness by drawing a hard line in the sand and creating enemies, good guys and bad guys. We're the good guys, they're the bad guys. Have you ever noticed when we draw a line between good guys and bad guys, we're always the good guys? Like wherever you are at the time, you always wind up on the good guys team. Spoiler alert, we're all bad guys. We all need grace. Every single one of us need a savior. There are no bad guys. If this was a Western movie, we all get black hats. Jesus gets a white hat. That's how it works. We are all ultimately on the same side. Paul said it this way in Romans 3. We have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Every single one of us. Which to me means there are no natural born enemies. You may be a lion, you may be a calf, but you're both sinners. You might be Republican, they might be Democrat, but you're both sinners. You might put the toilet paper roll up against the wall, and they might do it wrong, but you're both sinners. When Jesus came and said, you've heard it say you shouldn't kill, but I say if you get angry without cause, you've already killed. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say if you lust, you've already done it. He was putting the bar up here. Everybody had lowered the bar down to things they could accomplish, right? We put the bar down where I know I'm good. I've never done this. I've never done that. So that's now the bar. And he was like, no, 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 no. The bar's up here. The bar's up here where nobody can clear it. The point is you need grace. You need grace. We would love to make enemies out of other people, but Jesus came to say, no, 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 no. You're all broken. You need a savior. I was raised Roman Catholic and was Catholic till I was 17. And so Pope John Paul was my pope, like he's the one I grew up with. And he was shot once, assassination attempt, hit four times. And as soon as he uh, regained consciousness in the hospital, he declared to all Catholics to pray for his shooter and his shooter's family. And upon being released from the hospital, he immediately went to the jail and met his shooter, prayed with him and prayed for him, and gave him absolution. 
from the shooting. And some people say there's conflicting stories that the shooter became a Catholic. And, and he then left and petitioned for his shooter to be released based on the fact that Catholics had done some pretty terrible things to this guy's people. And he understood where the guy got his anger. So he petitioned. It, it took a few years, but the Italian government finally released him on the, on the Pope's request. It's possible to love your enemy. Not easy, but it is possible. The church is and has always been full of every possible conviction and ideology and theological belief, wolves and lambs, leopards and goats, babies and cobras. And they all come to the same table as one. That is peace. That's what Isaiah saw. He saw a church full of natural-born enemies coming to the table as one. And we like to divide over stupid stuff. The church hasn't always done it right, obviously. We love to talk about who's in and who's out. None of that's biblical. We're called over and over again to be one. The scripture, one of the main points of the whole thing is be one. It doesn't mean we all wash out to like some really generic belief that we can all agree on. It means that even in our disagreements, even in our debates, even in our, our, you know, passion for right theology that we throw at each other. Be one. Come to the table as one. If we walk around using us and them language, in and out language, then we need peace. That's not peace. Because Jesus changed the game on Christmas. He had the ultimate us-them claim. If anybody... Could, could claim an us and them. It's Jesus in heaven looking down on us. If, if anybody had the, the right to use us-them language, it was Jesus. But instead of that, he, he entered in. He came to become us, to become part of we. So this week as we meditate on peace, As you do the devotional, as you meditate on peace this week, here's my suggestion. Take five minutes. Don't read your Bible. Don't pray. This is meditation. Five minutes. Think about peace. Scan your psyche for the people you consider them, those people. And then imagine what it might be like if if you change that. Uh, Ultimately, they're in the same boat I am. They're they're a broken sinner who needs Jesus, just like I do. And then try to imagine what you could do to, to reach out. To them. And then go from that place of meditation and shine that. Just shine. Just like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna act in an us and them anymore. Take joy in obeying the law of the Lord. Turn off the news. Maybe stick up for somebody you normally wouldn't stick up for. Advent is a season of waiting. We wait for the appearing of Jesus. But it's not like a passive waiting. It's not like waiting in line, you know, where you just kind of stand and, and wait. It's an active waiting. It's like, it's like waiting for dinner guests to come over. You know, that super active waiting. That's like they're going to be here at 6 and the house is trashed and the kids haven't even had a bat. That kind of waiting, like that very active waiting. We wait for Jesus. That's, that's what Advent is about, focusing on that waiting for Jesus. But it's an active waiting where we're active 
actively trying to create the world he called us to create while we wait for him. Our job is to spread good, to push back the darkness as we shine as much peace as possible. Let's go to the table. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you were not aloof. You did not stay separate, but that you descended. You took the path of descent to enter into our mess and to be with us, Emmanuel, God with us. I pray you'd give us that same heart to reject dividing lines, but rather to step over them, to invite people to join us on the same journey we're on. Not a finish line, but a beginning. Come pursue Jesus with me. Pray for the grace to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.